a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Did you know that approximately one out of 10 Americans are struggling with or in long-term recovery for an addiction? On today's episode, Liz and I talk with Dr. Robert Navarra, who's one of the nation's leading experts when it comes to surviving and working through addictions. Dr. Navarra's treatment is unique in that he includes both partners in the counseling and recovery process, as well as couple recovery workshops. Dr. Navarra has been a certified Gottman therapist since 2007 and is a master trainer, consultant, and researcher with the Gottman Institute. He has trained therapists nationally and internationally and is a popular presenter at conferences, webinars, podcasts, and in the media. Dr. Navarra developed a relational model of addiction assessment and treatment and has been published in textbooks and in the Encyclopedia of Couple and Family Therapy on systemic approaches in addiction recovery. He is currently collaborating with the Gottmans on researching the effectiveness of a workshop for recovering couples that he designed called Roadmap for the Journey, a Path for Couple Recovery. Additionally, he teaches addiction assessment and treatment in the Graduate Counseling Psychology Program at Santa Clara University in California. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to Stronger Marriage Connections. I'm Dr. Liz Hale, clinical psychologist, along with my friend, the professor, Dr. Dave Schramm. Together, we have dedicated our lives to bringing you the best we have in valid marital research, along with a few tips and tools to help you create the marriage of your dreams. Today's segment is a tender one, addictions. If you aren't impacted by them, then you know someone who is. Over 25 million Americans are in long-term recovery. That's about one in 10 Americans. Approximately two-thirds of all families in the U.S. have been impacted by addiction. Many times, couples and families are told to work their own program before trying to address couple and family issues. But our next guest, Dr. Robert Navarro, believes relationships are key. First, we want to thank you, Bob, for sharing the research that couple stability is the single biggest predictor of successful long-term recovery. Welcome to Stronger Marriage Connection, my friend. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate yeah, it. It's really a pleasure. Well, Bob, we, yeah, we, I'm so excited as well. This is a, an honor really for us to have uh, you on our show and to be sharing so much about an important topic. Can we, can we start out? Couples, they often feel confused or even overwhelmed when addressing recovery in their relationship. And you say this is largely based on fear and misunderstanding. Is that right? The fear and the misunderstanding starts with the professional community. So yes, <laughs> because what we've established are uh, sort of treatment protocols that say this is not ironclad in terms of er not every treatment program does this, but mostly they do. And so the notion is that when somebody gets into recovery, that we should be separating the partners and focusing on their individual recovery. And I've, I've worked in addiction since 87, and that was the model I was trained in. And what I have learned through research and through uh, the lack of research to support 
that we should separate couples. Uh, the, the research actually indicates that the, the relationship is a huge predictor of long-term successful recovery. And we, what we want to do is stabilize the relationship as soon as possible that because there's some, there's three recoveries that are going on here. We've got the, the partner with the addiction, we've got their partner, and then we have the relationship. And if we focus on all three, I think we have a sort of a jump on really establishing recovery for, for both partners and for the relationship. Yeah. Yeah. That model, it does. That model completely makes, makes sense. So I, I love the direction that you're going. But it's not done very often, you said, right? So sorry, no, Dave. It's, it's not. Yeah. And yeah. Say, say more about that, Bob, please. Why is it not done well, often? I, it's the original, I guess some of the notions behind this made sense to me initially and kind of on face value. It's like, yeah, that kind of makes sense. So there's so much going on when a person gets into recovery. I mean, the, the, everything is different mostly, right? Just across the board, individually, relationally, socially, just across the board. And so the idea of stabilizing individual wellness makes total sense on the face value. But what is overlooked is the fact that what's following couples into recovery is typically a lot of trauma and a lot of history that left untouched, left unsaid, left undealt with leads to, you know, increasing distress because we've moved from an active, I'm going to sound like a therapist for a moment, uh, an active addicted system. So there's addiction in the family life. And now we're looking at recovery and now that changes everything. And how do we establish a new relationship? How do we deal with the past? And so it, there's a whole new set of issues that start at the beginning of recovery that have to be addressed. And we also know that couples impacted by divorce, uh, excuse me, by addiction have the highest divorce rate of any sort of comorbidity. So things that tend to split partners up, addiction is like just about at the top, really at the top. So early intervention is really important. Yeah. Yeah, I love this new new direction you're taking this in, Bob. We often hear the the about codependency. You know, whenever we hear about um, addictions and relationships, so what's the difference really between codependency and interdependency? Yeah, that's a a really good question. I love that question, Dave. <laughs> and the reason I like that question so much is I'm redefining some ways to think about partners impacted by addiction. So typically what happens, and I'll get your, I promise I'll answer this question. Typically what happens is if you're in a relationship with someone who's has an addiction disorder, addictive disorder of some kind, then they get into recovery. There's an automatic attribution typically for the partner of being codependent. Well, what does that mean? That's a, sort of this assigned label that you're, you've got some negative behavior patterns, which is, probably true in terms of adjustment, but I think that's, that's adjustment to the disorder. That's what I'm trying to say. But what's missing is acknowledging two important things is that a partner impacted by addiction um, has what I would call, and this term has not caught on yet. I'm hoping it will secondhand harm. And it's based on the same principles as secondhand smoke. We go, well, you've been impacted and evidence of that Im being impacted should not be pathologized. And that's the concern I have with uh, sort of this limited version of codependency. So secondhand harm is a really useful term, I think, to add. And the second sort of upping the ante a little bit with that secondhand harm concept is post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think it's short-sighted to, to limit recovery issues to codependency and not 
also include these other terms or the concepts behind them that say, and we need to talk about how this has impacted you, not because you're have this pathological behavior, but because you've been subjected to this, the impact of this disorder. And most likely there's PTSD underneath this. So if somebody's identifying codependency as an issue, I don't say that's a bad thing. I say, well, tell me what you mean by that. And what are the sort of the, the patterns that you've developed to adapt to this really horrific disease that's entered this relationship. And let's add these other two terms. So here's the difference. Now I said all that as a preamble, <laughs> uh, the difference between codependency where there is unhealthy behavior, I almost hate saying unhealthy. They're functional behaviors that have developed as a result of an addiction, upsetting everything. So it's an attempt to manage an out of control situation. And I prefer the term functional dysfunctional. So it's functional to the degree that it works to some degree. It's dysfunctional degree that it doesn't work. So what I want to explore with individuals and couples is what is not working in your response to this thing that's invaded the relationship. And so we'll put that under the codependent label. Interdependency. And I asked John Gottman this, I said, how do you define interdependency? Cause this is a good thing, folks. <laughs> Even though it has the word dependency in it, this is a good thing. Healthy relationships have interdependency. Basically what John said was interdependency is a willingness and an openness for both partners to get behind this idea that it is okay for the both of us to express our thoughts, our feelings, and our needs. So what I like to work on with all couples, regardless of if there's addiction or not, is to say there's a way we need to establish that as sort of the, a, an okay thing if your relationship's going to advance. If, it's, if you're going to move forward, there needs to be some kind of agreement that says it's okay to actually share what you think, feel, and what you need. And that's a huge thing, I think, for any couple to do when there's a lot at stake sometimes in the risk yeah. of doing so. So what you're seeing is when one partner relationship faces addiction, they not only need support, but of course, the other partner does as well. And what's most helpful for those partners? Um, the ones that are the ones that love the person with the addiction. What's well, important yeah. for them to know and understand, please? I think what, what's most important is how we define the problem. So anybody impacted and traumatized by somebody else's addiction, which often happens, uh, will have a lot of anger, a lot of hurt, a lot of pain, obviously, and a lot of oftentimes ambivalent feelings about the person and, and the damage that's happened. What I think is really crucial in the model that um, is sort of built into my thinking here is if we externalize this thing called addiction, so we hold it outside of the relationship and we say, this is an uninvited intruder that has gotten into your relationship and created all sorts of damage. Then the concept is that not my partner with the addiction is a bad person. Partner has a disease. And I can talk more about that because that might be controversial for some folks, but has the disease that's impacted my partner, me and the relationship. So stepping back from that and saying, okay, this thing has swept us away. And now hopefully if we can get into recovery, we can, look at the damage that has happened, but now begin to establish in some ways, kind of a new relationship going forward with a whole new way of thinking, feeling, sharing, and relating to one another. So it's not my partner or my parent causing the problem. It's the disease, right? The focus that's right. is that, that we can, we can band together against this entity that's come between mm -hmm. us. You know what? I'm glad you captured it that Liz, the way you did, because I literally got an email from, um, from, a wife of 
a couple <laughs> of the, with that husband had, had a pretty severe alcohol addiction and was in recovery and they did the workshop. And when she and they really got if, that, this is a thing that's invaded the relationship. She sent me an email that said, this made all the difference in the world, understanding how we have both been impacted by this disastrous disease, this, this disorder that has created so much damage. We're in it together and we're responsible for our own recoveries and the partner with the addictions responsible for the things he, she, they did. So there's that. And it's not sort of letting them off the hook, but there needs to be a context for what those behaviors, like where they came from. If I can squeeze one more thing in here, because I think this is really crucial. So if you think about any severe mental health or physical disorder, so maybe bipolar disorder, severe depression, severe anxiety disorders, medically, cancer, uh, chronic pain. If you think about those things and how that impacts couples, and here's the uninvited intruder once again coming into the relationship. And can we help couples talk about that thing that's right in the room? Uh, and that's how I see dealing with addiction, that there needs to be a way to talk about this thing. Uh, and, and that allows hurt, upset, pain, as long as it, there's a way to do that, that can be harmful. And there's a way that could be healing you know, to, to express those things by saying, this is the impact of this thing on me. And it's very powerful when couples can get to that place, regardless of the disorder. Yes. And I, was, does it work for children too? I work with a lot of adult children who really are very upset by a parent's um, addictive behavior. So I imagine it's very mm -hmm. much the same, right? It is exactly the same. So I teach a class at Santa Clara University on, uh, it's a graduate program, counseling psychology. And these are students who have to take the class. <laughs> Some of them are uh, you know, not so, so thrilled with having to take a class on assessing addictions and treating them. And a lot of times it's because of family history. And by the end of the class, it so often happens uh, that they go, now that I understand the nature of addiction and th the things that I would really felt hurt and traumatized by, there's a context now that I feel like I can begin to heal. So I can still be angry, but I need to understand sort of what's underneath all this crazy behavior sometimes. And it's really changes that have taken place in the brain. And that's the neurobiology of addiction that is just makes all the difference in the world for the person with the addictive disorder to now understand why they do these horrible things sometimes and they love their partners and their children and their families and yet these things continue. How do we explain that? So the stop mechanism in their brain is broken and we know how and where in the brain to explain that. There's a lot of science. So this is not just sort of wishful thinking. This is, there's a lot of science that supports exactly what I'm saying. That's been around quite a while. I believe you. We need your book, Dr. Bob. Where is your book? Well, I'm getting there. All yeah. right. We, oh, I'm yeah, getting we, there. What, what do you see are like the most, the, the top three or four most common addictions today, please? Yeah. The most serious ones start with tobacco. So oh. tobacco, alcohol, and opioids. More people die from tobacco-related disorders than any other drug in the world. So it's in the U.S. and just worldwide. So there's there's the pandemic version of that, right? And then alcohol is, uh, death rates are increasing from alcohol. And what's interest, interesting is kind of cavalier, so I apologize that, but what's significant is that a lot of people die from alcohol-related diseases without actually having developed an addiction. So there's a lot of research that's coming out that's that 
you're going to hear in the news like there, you know, some some drinking might help with heart health, and and there's some advantages here and there with cholesterol and stuff like that. There's there's a kind of a thin window of good and bad. <laughs> um, so a lot of people are drinking at levels that are creating harm to their health without coming close to an addiction. So that's really high. So it's imp- important to know what sort of safer safer levels of drinking are, are going to be. Yeah, should we talk about those safe levels real quick? Like, yeah, I guess that was kind of a, a trailer man for and a woman. And <laughs> you taught me this. Well, yeah. <laughs> so the research is changing things. So sort of what's currently given by doctors, and this is uh, universally almost like even Europe has their own version of this. There was a difference between safe levels for male and females. Um, so we got this binary concept of gender we have to work with here to say. You're the sex you are born with is what I'm referring to. Right. So, uh, it's thought that, um, men have higher levels of water and have more water in their body to dilute the alcohol. And there's a enzyme called alcohol dehydrogenase, which breaks down alcohol. It turns out that women don't have as much water in the body to dilute the impact of alcohol in the organs and a less effective version basically of alcohol to hydrogenase. So what that means, and then there's a concept too between um, fat and muscle ratio that tends to be different between male and female bodies. So all of that leads to the alcohol staying in the female body longer. So if you have a 125 pound man, 125 pound woman, same amount of food in their gut, drink the same amount of alcohol, her out blood alcohol level will be higher. Just That's just unfair, but that's that's what it is. So the versions that were kind of popular still in the, in the current science, but it's changing, is that for a man, probably no more than two drinks on one drinking, on a, in a drinking occasion, I should say, and for a female, no more than one. The gender gap is kind of closing. Now they're saying probably, probably, uh, one drink was, is probably going to be a safe level, maybe, hopefully, and even that's being questioned for both male and females. And when I say one drink, here's, here's a unit of drink, five ounces of wine. That's it. That's a drink. Ounce and a half of distilled spirits. That's a drink. Same amount of alcohol content in that. And then 1.5 ounces of distilled spirits. Yeah, it's not much. So you, it's not much. It's not much. No. I know you look at it, it's kind of shocking. And, and they're kind of looking at even those levels are considered there's there's increased risk health wise, even at that level. So there's kind of this yeah, even at that. So I suspect uh because the science is the studies just keep coming out saying the same thing, is that there's 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 just a great interest in people not drinking as much, even at a lower level, to kind of say well, maybe the occasional drink, mm-hmm. you know. Well, good to know. Yeah, Yeah, that's so informative. Thank you. We'll be right back after this brief message. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. 
Well, let's dive right in. All right. So, Bob, you promote for all couples to develop rituals that provide uh, predictability, consistency, and meaning in their relationship. When couples begin recovery, this is an important part of the work. So where do you start? Mm, Yeah. So this concept of rituals, that's really built into the Gottman research that looks at how important rituals are as this way for couples to connect. It's the thing that gives meaning at sort of a deeper level. And the same concept would apply and by ritual. So let's talk about that. So there's a difference between routine and ritual. Routine is we have dinner at six. Ritual is, and at dinner time, we agree not to talk about any problems. We might check in with the kids on how they're doing. We stay positive. You know, how was your day? Highlights, lowlights. It's built into family life. And so the consistency of a behavior that's meaningful to everyone is a ritual. Now, when you have a couple that's been impacted by addiction, typically rituals and routines are up for grabs because they've been oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes disrupted significantly. You know, dinner time that's supposed to be at six doesn't happen because mom's under the influence or dad's under the influence and, you know, anything can change rituals and routines. So going forward, the point to say, what is it that we can establish together to begin to increase trust and, and deeper connection. And so what can we do to develop that that's predictable and gives us meaning and purpose. And I'm thinking about one of my research couples who was saying, well, when they, before the wife got into recovery, uh, she and he, the husband did a lot of heavy drinking. They'd have a two hour happy hour before dinner. Uh, <laughs> and I don't think it, by the description, it didn't sound like they really fought or things sort of fell apart. They just sort of numbed out and not available to the kids. So she gets into recovery and they tried to have a non-alcoholic ritual. Like, well, let's do a pre-dinner happy hour. That's non-alcoholic. <laughs> what they reported is that they just stared at each other, go, they were bored to tears. <laughs> it's like, okay. So that didn't work. It's like, all right, let's come up with something else. So, and this is not a therapy couple. This is a research couple. They're, they're reporting this, right? This is a focus group. They're, they're telling their stories. And so, so what they said um, is, well, they decided to take a class together. They're both interested in yoga. So now that became a new ritual of connection. They looked forward to that on Tuesday nights and that, you know, and so they found a new way to connect. And if alcohol is a part of a routine or a ritual, then you need to find something to replace that, that gives you meaning and purpose. And this is true for all couples anyway, you know, date night, it would be a ritual of some kind. I'm so impressed, Bob, that you've taken John Gottman's work you've worked closely with, and then you've added to it regarding this addictive piece. I, it's just a whole new world that's opened up. Well, it's, what's exciting to me is is some of these, these concepts are so healthy for all couples that that have not been applied to couples impacted by addiction. Now it's like, well, wait a minute, why are we not including these things that we know work really well? And so one, one of the, actually one of the exercises in the um, uh, retreat that I do with couples, recovering couples retreat, and I trained therapists to do this, is rituals of connection. So it's a a card deck. I developed these different card decks to have conversations. So they thumb through the card deck and say, oh, here's something I'm kind of interested in doing, you know, and it it sort of generates a conversation and then they can pick and select if that's meaningful for them and who does what and kind of put it all together. But the most important question is, is what's meaningful to you about this activity? That's the key in whether this thing's really going to be meaningful at a level that 
makes a difference for their relationship. And that card deck is through the Gottman Institute. Is that right? Did I see that? It is. Okay. Yeah. Right. It's uh, yeah, they have it on the, in the bookstore. I have four, four different card decks, my recovery, your recovery, our recovery, and then rituals of connection. And then I have a, a, a free class that I offer on my website on how to use the card deck or how to use the concepts underneath them without purchasing the card deck. Okay. All right. So that would be, it's, it's a one hour class and it gives a lot of details on how mm-hmm. to use it. Is that just yeah. for couples or it could be for families too? What do you think? It's really designed for couples. Okay. It could, <laughs> I get it. It could be adapted um, for families. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to buy that yeah. today. I saw that and I, I loved it. I really appreciate you expanding that uh, that repertoire for so many more of us, Bob. So the book is coming, you say, and in the meantime, you've written a chapter on affairs and addictions. Can you tell us more about what's in that? And is that for a uh, a student or a layperson? Where is that textbook? Yeah, this it was interesting. So I, yeah, I got invited to add a chapter to this book. It's a second edition called um, "Infidelity: A Practitioner's Guide to Working with Couples in Crisis." So this is definitely not a book for your general public. This is for professionals and for students, I'm I'm assuming, second version. So I asked to add, I was asked to add this component of alcohol, or not alcohol, addiction and affairs. And so I did a ton of research putting this together. I just submitted the draft, so it's not out yet. It'll be out if all goes well by in fall. And I I don't even know what the other chapters are. I'm just doing this one thing. And and so the question is, well, we know that people with alcohol use disorder, um, the odds of infidelity are go up pretty significantly when that's happening. And that tends to be true for addictions, it seems. But then you get into this sort of this gray area of, well, what about, is there such a thing as sex addiction? And does that contribute to sort of this dysregulation around sexual impulses? And so kind of surfacing all of the the current research on that is basically there is a classification of compulsive sexual behavior disorder that's literally listed in the uh, International Classification of Diseases, the ICD-11 version of that. And it's not literally a, uh, it's not really considered an addiction. It's not listed as an addiction at this point. It's more like a compulsive behavior. Is it dysregulation around that? But that's how gambling started, and that's actually recognized now as an official addiction, uh, both in different nomenclatures, without getting all technical. So it's listed there, but it originally was listed as a compulsive or an impulse disorder. So what may happen, and I suspect it will be because the science is coming in, is that there is validity to sex addiction or some version of this compulsive sexual behavior that we can track in the same way that we can track what happens with alcohol. In terms of, or, and other substances, I should say, we know, I'll say it again, where in the brain, there's studies that are replicating the same brain type of brain activity in an addicted brain where there's compulsive sexual behavior. Same processes are found with people who are addicted to substances. So you go, huh? So for some people at that far end of the continuum, I would say there's dysreg, there's this inability to, to manage their behavior because there's an addiction process that is very similar to what we see with substances. Now, having said that, most people who drink too much, who use heroin, who use cannabis are not addicted. 
most people are not. So what we're looking at is a, is a smaller percentage of people who use substances and including sex related stuff that are probably not addicted. Uh, however, you kind of get that a certain percentage of probably somewhere under 10% where their behavior can really be explained quite adequately by, you know, this inability to stop their behavior, despite the negative consequences and the pain that they feel as a result of their use is it's, it's really, and the shame they feel. So it, it's a complicated topic. So it may not be an addiction, but it's still problematic. That's right. And that would be true for substance. That's right. It could be, but you kind of look at these, those sort of the worst case scenarios. And as therapist, I would imagine you've had your versions of folks that come in and spend terrible amounts of money on things and behaviors that they're ashamed of that they can't stop. And I mean, super dysregulated around that. It's like, okay, there's something underneath this that we need to understand that's probably happening in the brain, probably to explain this behavior. Makes a lot of sense to me. So you and Dr. John Gottman are co-authoring a book together. Well, that's what we keep promising to do. He keeps checking in with me. I haven't started it yet. <laughs> so it's just, I've been talking about this for a while, but I know he's still on board. So what we're doing now is we're collecting, or I'm, I'm collecting at this point, I'm collecting data from people that have taken my workshop and uh, looking at the impact that it's had. And John's keeps encouraging me. And so maybe I think this is the year I'll, I'll do it <laughs> on couples right. in recovery. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Wonderful. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you are offering, uh, right. Workshops. Uh, can you give our listeners more information about your couple recovery workshop? How does couple recovery relate to addiction recovery and, uh, what, where can listeners go for more information, Bob? Sure. Okay. So my website got a, is a good place to start. <laughs> and that's, I know you'll have this in the show notes, but drrobertnavara.com. And what I have coming up actually is a, a, a webinar as well. So I'll get to the workshop in a second. Webinar for Betty Ford Hazelton. That's kind of a little sample of what happens in, uh, so it's I'll be with PowerPoint. It's for couples. It's not for professionals per se. It's not designed it's designed for couples, right? So this is, here's some things you can do as a couple in recovery. And so that happens April 26th, uh, the Hazleton webinar, uh, from nine to 10 AM Pacific time. Then I have the very next thing is a workshop at Betty Fort Hazleton in Minnesota and it's roadmap for the journey. So this is my workshop, the couple recovery workshop, and that happens May 19th through 21st. And you can go on the Hazleton website for that. Uh, or to my website, I'll, I haven't listed it yet, but I will uh, after this show. <laughs> then I've got online versions uh, that have been very successful that I started just just after COVID hit. Uh, and I've been really happy with the live online versions. So I have a workshop that's happening June 10th and 11th. Uh, and again, you go to my website and you'll get all so- sorts of information about what it is, what to expect. And I interview every couple before, um, beforehand to make sure yeah. it's a match. Yeah. yeah. Beforehand, make sure it's a match. And it's only for couples where there's no active addiction. Okay. So it's not appropriate if there is active addiction or concerns about substances or behaviors. So we're in recovery or my partner's in recovery. So it'd be after the fact, after the fact they're in recovery. Yeah. It's that true. Well, what we're looking at is, is the transition from active addiction, which the couple kind of figures out how to manage their life and their relationship. And now they're in active recovery, which is a huge transition. And we know from the Family Recovery Project, which I was also 
part of uh, it's a first study to look at what happens when a couple gets into recovery and all the trauma that happens in that first year, which is normal. <laughs> so it gives them a blueprint, a roadmap to say, these are, these are things to expect. This is normal. Yes, it's difficult, but there is a path you can take. And that's what this roadmap is about. So that happens, um, the online version, June 10th and 11th. And then I'm just listing another one, October 21st and 28th. And so that's a week apart. They're consecutive Saturdays in this case, six hours each day with some breaks in there. Uh, and it's experiential. You're not sharing with other couples. You're giving you're given tools on how to do this. Then you go into your individual breakout room virtually. So no one else is in there with you. You can invite me into there to answer questions and uh, get you through the exercise if that's needed. And then come back and there's, it's not therapy. It's really a workshop and it's really just for the partners. It's not so much interactive with other partners, with other couples, I should say. Okay. Wow. That's very in- intensive and very personal. Love that. Wow. That's, that's unusual. Your novel. Yeah, we'll be sure to put um, all those, the links and the dates, um, all that information on the website. So for listeners who are listening right now, you'll be able to go uh, to the website and find out all about the the dates and the upcoming uh, workshops there on our website and in the show notes. Yeah, sweet. Sweet. And for those that are active in an addiction, whether it's a partner or the individual themselves, what's the first order of advice you have for them, please, Bob? Yeah. So for a partner who's concerned about their, their partner's use and there's evidence of addiction or problematic use, then, you know, the first order of business is to take care of yourself first and foremost. So that's not new advice. That's one that's typically given. But if there is um, any willingness, hopefully on the partner with the, you know, with the potential substance or behavior problem to be assessed and to figure out what's going on, uh, that would, we have to figure out to name the problem. And what I've discovered is that, so use falls on this continuum from non-problematic to problematic. When you get to problematic, it could be not really diagnosable as a, as a use disorder, but problematic. So a couple's therapist could be very helpful in having partners talk about that and figure out what's going on. So education is a big part of that therapy process. Then you get to an actual use disorder and the way the American Psychological Association has put that together, and it's not a bad model, is that there's 11 symptoms of addiction. If a partner or few meet two of those symptoms, then you meet the criteria for a use disorder with whatever that substance is, cocaine, amphetamines, alcohol, tobacco, caffeine, <laughs> it's even in there. Oh dear. <laughs> um, so if you meet two, two or three of those symptoms, then mild if you have four or five of those 11 symptoms, that would be considered moderate severity. And then six plus would be severe. If you're in that six plus, the odds are you're, you might have actual, have an addiction. So a use disorder and addiction are not necessarily the same thing. You could have a use disorder with alcohol, for instance. We know that 70% of people who are diagnosed with alcohol use disorder today will not meet that diagnosis criteria in four years. So it has not evolved. There's three stages of developing an addiction, which I won't get into, but there's three stages that hasn't developed in the brain yet. Maybe on their way. Maybe on their way. The genetic predisposition, but, you know, Mm -hmm. but for somebody at that six plus, that, that would be a significant number to pay attention to. And most likely would, you'd want to rule out whether there's actually an addiction 
it'd be high risk. So there's really a grade of use, isn't there? Yes, there Mild, is. Medium, yeah. severe. Yeah. I mean, I've worked with plenty of couples where uh, the drinking was problematic and maybe even met the criteria for a use disorder. And then with some education and some choices and other things to deal with it, ways that alcohol was serving, uh, no longer became problematic. So that's the first thing is to sort it out. Yeah. And it can change then, it sounds like, right? It can. Absolutely. It, it can. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Keep your eye mm -hmm. on the details. Well, we, Dave and I love asking you this question with your vast knowledge and experience in working with couples. What do you believe, Bob, overall is the key to a stronger marriage connection, please? Oh, I love that question. I believe, and I did a, a vlog on this, uh, the smallest units of intimacy is the name of the vlog. It's actually, it's a YouTube thing uh, on my station. And what it refers to is the smallest units of intimacy come in these moments when partners try to connect with each other. And so I'm making a bid. This is right out of the Gottman playbook. This is not my stuff. So this is making a bid for connection of some kind, a bid for humor, a bid for support, a bid for love, a bid for something. And if partners respond in ways that feel good, then that locks in something that increases trust and a feeling of commitment. And so what I have really come to believe that that's one of the most significant parts of the Gottman methodology or model, I should say. Smallest units of intimacy is comes in these moments throughout the day. It's not it matter what you're talking about. It's not these deep conversations. It's about responding to a partner in a way that feels good. And it's very, very, very powerful. It builds what's called positive sentiment override. So when you get to conflict, here's the thing. So if you want to re reduce conflict in your relationship, then what you want to do is focus on the times when you're not in conflict. That's the key. And, and when you're not in conflict and you're turning towards your partner in a way that feels good to the partner, then you're connecting at emotional levels that increases trust and reduces the intensity of co future conflict. Ah, that right there was worth everything today. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Bob, really. It's powerful stuff. Yep. I think it's really yep, powerful. It's are. brilliant you research. Are. You are powerful, yeah. too. Oh. Yeah, this has been great, Bob. I've never heard it called... I've heard bids for connection and positive sentiment all right, but never, I love that. The smallest unit, I mean, getting the right smallest unit of intimacy. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that is really a powerful concept. I, I love that. I'm going to credit you now when I say that. I'm going to. Well, uh, it, it's not really my idea though. I mean, just. I, I love the term. Putting together what Gottman. Well, yeah. it's all right. So, the, and the thing, you know, thing about that, that these smallest units is, um, is kind of thing about every time your partner makes an effort to connect with you, there's a moment where you can turn towards a partner. Hey, want to go for a walk? Sure. Want to go for a walk? Oh, thanks for asking, but I'm really tired. Maybe we can go tomorrow. That's still turning toward in a way. I mean, it's connecting, 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 connecting. And it increases trust when there's been betrayal in the relationship for any reason at all. It increases trust by saying, I need to know that you're going to respond to my needs when I express them emotionally as well. Yeah. Yeah. Powerful. Well, again, uh, Bob, thanks so much for, for coming on with us. We, I do, we like to end our, our episodes uh, the same way. And that is our, with our takeaway of the day. Do you have a, a takeaway of the day that you hope our listeners will remember? Yeah. So, so if there's problematic substance use or behaviors, it's really important to figure out, the degree and we're on the continuum, this thing's falling. So professional assessment somewhere, somehow I have to leave it kind of global. That would be one thing. 
And if it actually is an addiction, and I didn't say this, but here's the big takeaway. Addiction is treatable and it's preventable. And we, we know that from science. So if there is an addictive disorder, we're back with how Liz started the opening. 25 million people have figured out how to be in long-term recovery. That's significant. And so it is treatable and there is a, a genetic predisposition to this thing. So if there's addiction in your family, you're worried about your kids, it's preventable to the degree that you give them education and you give them the emotional resources and communication resources to deal with emotions and other things. But it's, it's very hopeful. There's a lot of science now that says addiction really is treatable and a lot of methodologies that are very effective. Mm-hmm. And that, so stay hopeful. Yeah, that does. I was going to say that brings, uh, that should bring hope to our, our listeners and those who have loved ones who are struggling. Liz, what about you? What's your takeaway today? And, you know, Dave, even hope to therapists, because I think like, yeah. like Bob said earlier, you know, it starts with us, right? And yeah. if we're not going to be encouraging or educated, I mean, there's, there's very little hope. So I appreciated, Bob, your reminder of secondhand harm and PTSD. I think that gets overlooked a lot with families mm-hmm. and partners of those who face difficulties with addictions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, sure. Dave, what's your takeaway, my friend? You know, uh, Liz, you took mine. That is, that's, I've never heard that term. I've heard a couple new terms today. And now the secondhand harm, I had not heard of. I'm not a therapist and don't it's have that sense, background. doesn't it? It does. It makes mm-hmm. sense that we're in this together and that it spills over and affects the other um, members in that system or in that, in that family. So I, I, mm-hmm. I love that. And that there's hope. I love this new way of, Hey, let's, we're mm-hmm. in this together. Let's counsel together because mm-hmm. of this, this couple relationship, yeah. it, it affects both, both people. Mm-hmm. Well, Bob, we sure again, appreciate you coming on. We appreciate your expertise. Uh, we'll again, we'll put our resources and the links Um, in our show notes and for our listeners that's all we have for today we'll see you next time on another episode of stronger marriage connection and remember it's the smallest units of intimacy i'll add that that create a stronger marriage connection take care thanks for joining us today hey do us a favor and take a few minutes to subscribe to our podcast and the utah marriage commission youtube channel where you can watch this and every episode of the show When you hit the like button and leave a comment, your feedback helps us improve the show. And don't forget to share this episode with a friend. You can also follow and connect with us on Instagram at Stronger Marriage Life and on Facebook at Stronger Marriage. Be sure to share with us what topics you want us to explore or what you loved about today's episode. If you want even more resources to improve your relationship connection, visit our website at StrongerMarriage.org where you'll find free workshops, webinars, relationship surveys, and more. Each episode of Stronger Marriage Connection is hosted and sponsored by the Utah Marriage Commission at Utah State University. And finally, a big thanks to our producers Rex Polanis and Alexis Alcott and the team at Utah State University. And you, our audience, you make this show possible. A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. Started two years of horror for an American in Venezuela. They said, you need to give us your phone and get ready because you're coming with us. I'm Becky Bruce, and I spent a year researching and piecing together Josh and Tammy Holt's story about their ordeal in a notorious prison. That's when everything started to turn bad. We had another pound on the door boom 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 and there was the police once again 
You can binge all of the episodes of Hope and Darkness on kslpodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts.